Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and strap yourselves in because we have a fantastic, earth-shattering half an hour of science for you today. Isn't that right, Stu? Well, yes, quite literally earth-shattering. Yeah, well, indeed, because... Well, I'm going to be looking at something that some people may have been suspecting but has been shown that not only do humans affect the climate of the planet that we live in, we actually affect the planet itself with some of our activities and I'm going to be explaining how human activity can cause earthquakes and does cause earthquakes. That is earth-shattering. That is earth-shattering. That's really interesting because today I'm actually going to do a story all about the Earth's crust as well. But we're going to like rewind back to year nine and talk about the continents, maybe even earlier than year nine. When, when did you learn about the continents? Ooh, I think it might have been primary school. Yeah, potentially. Well, uh, you know, it was pretty skimmed over the top. Skimmed over the top, like the, like the continents do on the surface of the earth. But there's been new research that is just changing the whole way we think about continents because a new continent is being put forward as as an additional continent. There think, are there I are no think, longer. I think I read about this. You might have read about that. This you this. might have read about this. I read about this. You might. You're trying to do a New Zealand accent. Yes, I am. It is Zealandia. Yes. Zealandia, the New Zealand continent. Anyway, that's, yeah. So we're, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about that and why it is a continent, why the researchers, the case they're putting forward. Interesting. As to why is it, it, it is a continent. Because, I mean, you... It's only a tiny little island. It's just a tiny little island. So how could it be a continent? Exactly. Well... There's I'm only, sh- there's only two, 2 million people. I I'm mean, sh- Antarctica's got less people, but it's a continent, so... We can't right. count. It's got lots of penguins, though. You don't. <laughs> yeah. if, if you count the number of penguins, it's by far the most penguins of any continent. Of any continent. <laughs> That's right. And Manisha, on the show today, Manisha is going to be giving her final tip for how to, um, how to make your goals... Achievable. And achievable. That's yes. right. It's actually, she's actually talking about evaluating your goals goal setting and and your habit changing activities. Yeah. So when you try to reach your goal and you fail at it, looking deep within yourself and uh, working out why that didn't work out as well as it could have, right? Evaluating? That's, yeah, that's, that's it's evaluation. Well, or, or, you know, or if you succeeded, why did you succeed? Yeah. Potentially. On with the show. All right, how many continents can you name, Stu? Seven. Yeah, I, w- I was taught seven as well. You've got Australia, Antarctica, Asia. Europe. Yeah. Africa. That's right. South America. Uh-huh. And North America. Yeah. And some people claim that there's six, so they put Asia and Europe together for as Eurasia. Eurasia, yeah. yeah. But, you know, how, however it is, it's, it's, it's only six 
or seven. It's mm. never eight. Right? No, no, no one's ever no one's ever said there was eight. No one's ever said there was eight. No, except researchers from New Zealand this week. Ah, <laughs> see now now I'm starting to see their agenda here. <laughs> oh, because they got because they because Australia is a continent. Yeah, and they're like. We want to be continent too. Yeah, well, and you know, it's if if they're from New Zealand, yeah, they are from New Zealand. It's not surprising and that, that they're trying to claim. It's a very strong case that they're claiming, and you know what they're calling the continent, Zealandia. Right. Yeah. Which actually, I think, I think Zealand means sea land. So, if it's all under the sea. It makes a lot of sense. Ah, Stu, this story's writing itself. It yeah. is mostly under the sea because, you know, New Zealand's not that big. It's not that big. And, and continents, when you think of continent, you think of big swathes of land. Well, that's, you know, that in most people's mind, a continent is the land that is that we walk around on and that you grow exactly. plants on and build cities yeah. on and farm and all that stuff. Yeah. So this continent, Zealandia... Well, the main part of it that's above the water is New Zealand. It is almost entirely submerged in water. 94% actually is underwater. But it isn't just New Zealand on this watery continent. It actually stretches out over 5 million square kilometres. So I think, does that make it like a large portion of the Pacific Ocean? Is that kind of what they're saying? It mostly stretches this way towards Australia. Okay. Yeah, it sort of just tucks in with New Zealand on the, on the on the other side, but it's actually towards this side, um, close, quite close to Australia, actually. Right. Yeah, the whole continent is supposed to be about two thirds of the size of Australia, and as well as New Zealand, it also incorporates New Caledonia, and Lord Howe Island and Norfolk Island. Right. So those little islands between New Zealand and Australia. And yeah, so these New Zealand researchers are saying that it qualifies as a continent and they are pushing for it to to be recognised as such. Apparently there isn't any official body that recognises continents, but they're just there's pushing. No, there's no continental congress that gets together and decides, should we let these guys in or we'll just no, leave them out in the cold? There isn't, <laughs> but but I do have something to say about that later later in the story. Now... You might think that being 94% underwater does not make it a continent. Like you said, like people think about a continent being be able to walk on land, but apparently there's a different set of criteria for being a continent. So is this, is this like a geological description or a geological definition of what a continent is? Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. So the first thing to remember is something that I'd forgotten that I think, you know, I probably heard about in year eight geology or something like that. There are two types of crust on the surface of the earth. There's continental crust. <laughs> and if this is making you hungry, you're not the only one. <laughs> there's continental crust and <laughs> an ocean crust. So there's not like wholemeal and white crust. It's just <laughs> continental and ocean crust. Okay. That's right. Ocean crust sounds a bit fishy. Yeah. Um, so there's... A <laughs> It's got the it's the prawn pizza. So this crust is further divided into fourteen major tectonic plates. But I'm not going to talk about the tectonic plates today. No. We are focused on the crust of the matter, so to speak. <laughs> anyway, so naturally continents are made out of this continental crust, and you've got both dry land crust and continental shelf. 
which is typically under shallow-ish water, whereas your ocean crust, in comparison, is under much deeper water. So is that is that the is that the only difference the depth or is there some other geological feature? No, there's also geological features. Right. But firstly, I'll get to the elevation. Yeah. So this one's pretty basic. Continents and their continental shelves vary in height, but are always elevated relative to oceanic crust. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. Uh, the entirety of Zealandia is actually elevated above the surrounding oceanic crust. One of the big differences between Zealandia. And um, the other continents is that it actually has a much wider and deeper continental shelf than is usually the case, uh, which is the reason why 94% of it is submerged under the current sea level. But it is at a higher level than the oceanic crust around it. At a much higher level than the oceanic crust around it. Yes. Um, Fun fact, the highest point of Zealandia is the Araki or Mount Cook, at 3,724 metres. Where is that? That's in New Zealand. Of course. Yeah. On, on the, on the landmass of the, New Zealand. On um, the 6% landmass yeah. of Zealandia. Secondly, what you were alluding to before, the distinctive geology. So basically, geologists can look at continental crust and oceanic crust rocks and see clear differences. So it's not just about elevation, it's about what actual rocks are in the crust. Uh, Rocks of the modern oceanic crust typically are made up of basalt and uh, something called gabba. Gabba. Gabba, gabba, hay. I don't know. If if you're a geologist out there and and you know how to say this word, this igneous rock, then please let me know if I'm saying it incorrectly. Anyway, so basalt is typically in your oceanic crust. Whereas continents have quite diverse rock assemblages, including your metamorphic rocks and your sedimentary rocks, such as granite, um, rhyolite limestone, your quartzites, you know, your, your niece with a silent G. Oh, yeah. Niece <laughs> with a silent G at the beginning, like, <laughs> like gnome. Like gnome. Yeah. Exactly. So looking at Zealandia, its rocks are just as old and just as diverse as the other continents. So it ticks that box as well. Thirdly, a continent has to have a crust that is thicker than the ocean floor and continental crust can vary quite considerably in thickness and physical properties. But from geophysical work that that has been done, we know that Zealandia has a continental crust that is much more thinner than other continents it is thick enough to be classified as as continental crust. So it's not a thin and crispy crust. It's, it's, it's a, a deep pan it's a, crust. It's a deep pan crust. That's right. right. I don't know why they didn't just write this in the research paper. They should have just put it in terms of pizza. People would understand it, that much more quickly. People would have been much more willing to, to, um, <laughs> to, to take on the, like, not, the whole a, paradigm shift <laughs> Moving to eight continents, if they just talked about it in terms of pizza. It's not a cheese-stuffed crust, but it is a deep pan crust. <laughs> Could be a cheese-stuffed crust. They need well, to that, upsell it a little bit. That would have to be a bit, bit thicker, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe in some places it's a cheese-stuffed mm. crust around the um, around Mount Cook, Cook area. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, um, a continent has to be surrounded by ocean crust. So you can't just have, like in um, Iceland, for example, you've, oh no, sorry, I think it's Greenland, you've got this area of continental crust 
that's an island, but there is also submerged continental crust which which attaches to the mainland of Europe. So Greenland is effectively part of the European continent exactly. rather than exactly. its own continent. Because it doesn't have a moat of ocean crust. Right. Yep, yep. So it doesn't have, yeah, that that deep area around the around the edges. Whereas Zealandia, the researchers have found that the edges between Australia and Zealandia are definitely separate and distinct at the narrowest. The continental crust between Australia and um, Zealandia is about 25 kilometres. It doesn't seem like much, but it's definitely there. So We have their word for it. Yeah, those pizzas are very close together. <laughs> but, but they are distinct pizzas. Anyway, so the main author of the article is a New Zealand geologist, Nick Mortimer, and he said that scientists have actually been researching all this data um, and putting this case together for more than two decades. So it isn't... It isn't a new theory, but this is the first time that it's been put to the world in such a convincing way. But what I think is most exciting is that we could have an opportunity to name this continent something extraordinary rather than just Zealandia. And given that the continent is in New Zealand, I think it would be only right to name it Middle Earth, right? Choice. In general, we look for new law by the following process. First, we guess it. Then we compute. So don't laugh. That's really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what if this is right. If this law that we guess is right, we see what it would imply, and then we compare those computation results to nature, or we say compare to experiment or experience. Compare it directly with observation to see if it if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make any difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't make any difference how smart you are who made the guess or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. The evidence for human activity affecting our climate continues to stack up, uh, despite mostly ideologically motivated efforts to pass them off as just coincidence or that it's all caused by some other thing that's not us doing it at all. It's some magical weather fairies coming to visit or something. I don't know. But look, some people seem unwilling or unable to accept or admit that humans could possibly have any impact on the vastness of the whole Earth and its atmosphere and ocean climate. And normally they're the people that um, that don't actually have any formal training in science, right? Well, a lot of times uh, it does seem to be people with no formal training in science and a lot, also a lot of people who um, have, vested interest. have vested interest in in doing things that might affect the atmosphere and ocean climate. Um, look, but humans, we know humans have accidentally and deliberately influenced uh, our immediate environment since we first started using fire and other tools to make life easier for ourselves. That's, that's why we started using tools and technology, was to make our lives easier. So we deliberately made our immediate environment hotter and cooler and all that sort of thing. So we know we can do that on a small scale. Another thing we started doing a really long time ago was digging. Um, digging holes. Yeah, we've dug things out of the ground for thousands of years, starting off with things like clay for making pots and, you know, ochre for painting on cave walls and things like that. Yeah. Obviously, stone 
and metals for tools, as well as, you know, more recently started digging up coal and fossil fuels, but even, you know, tapping in and, and bringing up water that we could use from artesian basins and things like that. But we've also dug big holes or created effectively created holes by building walls across valleys for capturing water in dams to use in agriculture and for drinking water for our increasingly large cities where most of the people in the world live. But the question, I guess, is does this have any effect on other natural processes? And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. So since the middle of the 20th century, we've more or less accepted that the continents uh, that make up the landmass of the Earth are moving around. Um, that before the middle of the 20th century, that was a pretty wacko idea, and a lot of people thought it was just absolutely crazy and couldn't take it seriously. Since then, we've actually measured that they're moving. So, you know, satellites have allowed us to measure the movement of continents over the years. Um, so the plates that, that the continents sit on move slowly past each other, and mostly we don't notice that. But occasionally they get stuck, um, and... The fact that they're moving, but they're well, they're getting they're getting pressure building up that's moving them in the same direction. Oh, and when this they isn't come, win well. when they come unstuck, oh god, what happens? We get an earthquake. So that's that's how earthquakes happen. Is basically the the continental plates and the tectonic plates moving around. They get stuck and then they get loose again, and all that energy that was pent up gets released as an earthquake. Um, so how does human activity possibly influence something like that? Mm. So I guess mining began as, you know, small-scale digging in the ground. You dig a hole, find a nugget of gold or whatever it is that you might be looking for. Probably not enough to cause any issues. If you dug too deep a hole, it might collapse in on top of you. But that's about the extent of it. Um, But as they got more extensive, we started to tunnel through fault lines in the the tectonic plates and get into the uh, the nitty-gritty bits of what was actually happening under the earth, and it got a bit more complicated. So, for a start, extracting solid ore um, or liquids like oil or even gas, natural gas, from the earth leaves big holes, really big holes, or removes the buffers which gas and, and uh, oil are actually providing between parts, you know, parts of the earth. Um, so that can cause collapse on a local scale or it can cause uh, more far-reaching earthquakes that can be felt miles away from where the uh, mine sites are. So just um, to illustrate, in the mining industry, over 30 billion tonnes of ore is removed from the ground each year. That's a hell of a lot of ore, which leaves a hell of a big hole. And that's double the rate it was... Mm. Sorry. Double the rate it was 15 years ago, and it's expected to double again in the next 10 years. Oh, my goodness. So we're going to be up to 60 billion tonnes of ore per year being pulled out of the ground, which means we've got these huge, massive holes in the ground, which will obviously weaken sort of uh, any kind of tectonic mm. activity will be amplified potentially by these big gaps that are there. Similarly, we're building increasingly large dams to hold water because there's a lot more people who need to drink. And that is actually putting an enormous amount of pressure. The The mass of the water that we're capturing is actually pushing down on the tectonic plates is themselves. Is it really? Yeah, it really and, is. And, and you know, how big do the dams have to be for, uh, well, the, for the pressure to there's, be felt? There's a, there's a dam in India that's five, uh, five miles long, which is about 
seven and a half kilometers, something like that. And that was constructed in the 1960s and has been shown to cause an increase in earthquakes as it fills up and a decrease in earthquakes as it empties out again. So they've gauged the uh, how full the dam is over the years since it was built in the 60s. And as it gets fuller, there's more earthquakes as it empties out. There's less earthquakes. So it's pretty obvious that the dam is sort of related to this. So there was a Dutch group who surveyed the most common causes of human-induced earthquakes up until 2016 and found that more than half were caused by mining oil and gas extraction combined. Water storage reservoirs called caused almost a quarter of the remainder of human-induced earthquakes. Um, and mining-related and water-related quakes were of the greatest magnitude of the human-induced earthquakes. So mining and water reservoirs are causing more earthquakes and more damaging earthquakes than anything else that we're doing, basically. Um, so I guess the research, which was published in uh, Earth Geosciences, um, it shows that even though small-scale activities might seem insignificant, you know, building a dam here or digging a mine there, you might not think they're likely to alter the global environment in any way. The cumulative effects of human activity and the scale of what we do can and does change the world, and we can measure it very readily. Um, and I guess possibly, I mean, people don't really say this anymore, but they certainly used to, um, but we should maybe stop asking, can we dig it? And start asking, should we dig it? tip of the mini-series. Woohoo! This is my mini-series on how best to make, break, or change habits. Today I'm going to be presenting the final tip of my mini-series and hopefully with these five tips all together you'll be able to keep up with your with your goals and, and achieve your big dreams. Um, in week one I discussed setting smaller more attainable targets as part of our larger goal. Then in week two, I discussed how to um, incorporate these new habits into our routines using the if-then planning method. Then in week three, we talked about the concept of decision fatigue. The idea that we only have so much willpower to exert, and if we waste it all on futile little decisions, we're not going to have much willpower left, especially when we're trying to break or change a habit. It makes it especially hard to stick to it. Um, and then finally, last week... I discussed the role that visualization and mental simulations can play in our success of achieving our goals. Uh, to help with the planning and to reduce the stress of achieving your goals, to reduce the anxiety of how we're going to get there, it's helpful to visualize the steps you're going to take along the way. So for my last tip of the series, 
I, I suppose this is a fitting tip for this this time of the year. It's to figure out where it all breaks down. Why did it go wrong? Why did you fail? Why did it not pan out the way that you wanted it to? What happened? Um, inevitably, we all hit a point where we just want to give up because we figured that the effort is actually not worth the reward anymore. Or maybe we've missed one step of the plan already, so we figure subsequent parts aren't worth it anymore. So I've already I've already missed one lesson, so might as well miss lesson next week. Or I didn't go for a jog this morning, so why would I bother going for a jog tomorrow morning anyways? So we get caught up in these sort of negative cycles. This is the point where our resolutions tend to fail. In 2010, um, Paul Levy, Herman, and Dio from the University of Toronto published a study where they tested two groups of, um, they tested eating habits in two groups of people. The first group of people were on diets and the second group of people were not on diets. Um, When they met their participants, our lovely authors served them pizza and cookies. And so those that were on their diets were, first of all, because they were they were presented with these um, with these options and they were already eating pizza anyway, so might as well have a cookie. So they found themselves over consuming on the snacks because they've already they've already messed up their diet today anyway. So why not? And um, the the group that wasn't on a diet, they were much more they were much more relaxed with their decisions and they were also much more um, level with their decisions. They didn't over consume. They were just they just ate the way that they normally would eat. Now, if these participants had evaluated where they went wrong, they may it may be easier for them to get back on track. So when you hit that point of giving up, I'd like you all to encourage and evaluate. I would encourage you all to um, actually evaluate and break down why your goals weren't working. Have you created your small manageable tasks? Have you incorporated these tasks into your schedule without completely changing your routine? Have you eliminated all of your extra options that may lead you to go astray? And have you gotten too wrapped up in your final goal and forgot to plan each step along the way? Why isn't it working? If you can pinpoint um, the reason your goal is so hard to achieve, um, you'll be able to rectify it and adjust your behavior and you'll be right uh, right on track back to achieving your dreams. So that's about it. If you find yourself struggling to keep up with your goals, remember these five simple steps. Set small manageable goals, work within your existing routine, eliminate unnecessary options, plan and visualize the steps along the way to your goal, and finally, when it all breaks down, just remember to reevaluate and figure out where it's all gone wrong. I hope these tips help, and I hope that you can all maintain and achieve your goals. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week 
where the team will once again get lost What's in science. science? Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.